is Rings of Hell, a No Olympics LA and Knock LA production, examining the history, impact, and possible future of the Olympic Games in Los Angeles. As we've seen in the big displays that countries like, you know, fascist uh, Nazi Germany did for their Olympic Games is it really just underscored their regime and makes them look better. It's all a great show of exceptionalism. It isn't about the sport at all. And to that end, I don't think that a successful Olympics could ever uh, be good for leftism. Episode 6, The Humiliation of the Will. Fascism, the Olympics, the World Cup, and global megasport. Hey all, welcome to episode six of Rings of Hell. I'm your host, Bushido Squirrel, and today we're talking fascism and the Olympic Games. Now, there are deep connections between fascist governments, fascist ideology, and the Olympic Games. This has become apparent throughout the 20th century. Exploring this topic with me today from the Democratic Socialists of America Los Angeles chapter, as well as No Olympics Los Angeles, I have Ariel. Yep, hello. Steven. Hey, what's up? And Molly. Hello. Tell us a little bit about fascism. What are we talking about here? <laughs> uh, well, um quick rundown of the uh, ideology. Um, it's it birthed out of um, a reaction to uh, the left and liberalism. It's on the left-right spectrum, it's on the far right, although um, there's specific things about it that make it distinct from, you know, classic conservatism. And um, yeah, one of the things that um, it's really big with all of them, depending on, you know, the region and everything like that, but uh, is a strong sense of, um, uh, you know, Militarism, um, national hypernationalism, uh, and that's really baked into a microcosm of sports, especially big sporting events on world stages. Um, They're really focused on competition. They're really focused on winning and losing. Right, right, and also with great triumph in sports, there's also a great loss and also a sense of humiliation. Which, and they're just obsessed with that dynamic and um, and to you know they fetishize it to the point where it's baked into their ideology, and. Um, yeah, so you you see that in, with you know they they just stay in some of the fascist states you know with a sense of great loss with either it's with the Italian fascism with the Roman Empire with the Germans it was whatever you know right bullshit they're into and then with American fascism it's you know maybe 1960s uh, white suburban tiki culture or something but um, uh, but yeah no it's it's so they it, with just like with sports there's great winners great losers they're really obsessed with that and you know just in 1934. Um, World Cup was uh, happened to be held in Italy, and it was when they were under the uh, rule of Mussolini, and he saw that as an opportunity. He wasn't even really into soccer, but he saw it as an opportunity to use that as a you know world stage. Um, that was kind of like the precursor to the 1936 Olympics in Berlin, um, where um, the Nazis uh, used that to their advantage. So is this purely a 20th century phenomenon, or is this something that kind of goes back a little bit farther than that? Because the Olympics obviously are pretty centered in the 20th and 21st century. Did we see this connection with fascism before that? Um, you know, I mean, it was, it, I don't know. What would you think? Yeah. As far as I know, I mean, the connection between sports and fascism, I don't recall like existing much before the Olympics and the World Cup. Guys, what about gladiators? Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, besides, besides I like mean, ancient history. I'm thinking of the modern Olympics, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the, the original Olympics were born out of deep tribalism between the, you know, the various Greek city-states, and they sometimes, like, played until death. So there's always this, like, kind of gross nationalism uh, embedded in any sport, really. Right, and tied to self-sacrifice, which is why you're supposed to be excited to be exploited by a sport. Right. 
So is that a reason why I'm seeing those sorts of things and things like Triumph of the Will and sort of like the propaganda that the Nazis were putting out? Because it seems like they're very focused on this idea of winning, of conquering, of, of exercising your will in terms of sports. They were emasculated by losing World War One, And so this gave everybody something to direct their anger towards. And that was mostly how it became fascist was people were angry and they needed something to be angry at. And that to me is the closest connection to what's happening now is it feels like people who feel betrayed by the recession, you know, who, who feel like they're not getting the adult America they were promised, uh, all the things that you're told you get mm -hmm. for being a American. Uh, and who did they decide to be mad at instead of rich people? Uh, minorities. Mm -hmm. And the idea of, of progression, of America becoming more progressive. So there has been this huge pushback, but uh, you can see how that can easily be fed into sports. So what kind of signifiers are we seeing? Because, uh, Stephen, you marked out 1934's uh, World Cup, the, the soccer tournament or football tournament, to, to be more, more uh, cosmopolitan, uh, as a, a, a marking point. So what was the difference between that and, like, previous big sports events, previous world events like this? Well, there was probably the, um, the progression in technology of how information was spread. Um, and this was kind of like the big, you know, first time in Europe that, you know, fascist nations really like, sh you know, showed like they're on the world stage. And when the idea that a sports team actually didn't just represent a sports team represented your country, um, you could see how that would translate into warfare. Um, and, and of course, with the 1934 World Cup, it, uh, Mussolini was able to fix the game so that he made sure that Italy won um, and you know and he they made a special trophy for it and everything like that so um, I, I'm not familiar with that can you tell me a little bit more about that yeah just um, he, he, you know he, they he he was uh, there's stories about how they bribed uh, the different officials um, and yeah the referees were like so notoriously in favor of Italy that every player and opposing teams just knew it just imagine being on the pitch and like feeling just the utter doom of that like okay we're just facing this right because when force. you play fascist sports it's like it's sort of rigged it's not exactly fair play it's not fair play and the things people talk about from the 1936 olympics uh are not that it was such a great triumph for uh nazi germany but that jesse owens won all the the race medals uh in the track and field event so, you know, it didn't even it didn't end up being what they wanted it to be. Their plan for it to be like this great show of how Germany was this great world power. They got upstaged by America mm -hmm. again. Although they did win the most medals, but in the, the races where it counted, it just they got upstaged. And I was going to ask, so for the Olympics, it seems like fair play being a, a you know, consummate athlete, that sort of thing is very important to this. So why do you think this fits so well with the Olympics? And, and why do you think they try and keep politics so far out of it? I mean, I don't think they try to keep politics out of the Olympics, per se. I mean, they like to play this, to do this show that says, like, you know, let's keep politics out of the Olympics. It's all about the athletes and the sport and bringing people together. Um, but as we've seen in the big displays that countries like, you know, fascist uh, Nazi Germany did for their Olympic Games is it really just underscored their regime and makes them look better. It's all a great show of exceptionalism. It isn't about the sport at all. And to that end, I don't think that a successful Olympics could ever... Uh, be good for leftism, but just like yeah. they're incompatible.
Yeah, my grandmother was an athlete, a track and field athlete who competed in Germany at the time, and she was also a Jew. And so she was on the German track and field team uh, for the 36 Olympics uh, for a very long time, up and um, almost up until the games, uh, because Germany was so concerned with whether or not the world would boycott the games if they were to sort of make it obvious what their policies were and what mm-hmm. they really intended to do. So they kept her on the team for as long as possible as sort of the token Jew, and she obviously really wanted to compete so that she could win and demonstrate, you know, Jewish athletic exceptionalism against the Germans, but she was also really terrified of what would happen if she did win, you know, because she would have been expected to sig Heil and she wouldn't she didn't, you know, she said she would never have sick hiled and it, it wouldn't just be an individual win. There would be some national identity in there no matter how much she tried to Right. Play. And what they ended up doing was kicking her off the team before the games because they felt so confident that the world was not gonna boycott the games, even if they did exclude all the Jews from their team. Uh So, you know, and that's, I think, what we talk about with people just sort of going along with stuff like this is that, you know, it's not just that the Nazi Olympics were held, it's that nobody did boycott them because Mm -hmm. of this idea that you're supposed to put, like, the greatness of sport over everything else uh, and to divorce it from politics, but it's obviously it's always very political. Right. When you look at these Olympics, the Nazi Olympics, it isn't just a display of, of, you know, the Third Reich and all of its, like, powers at the time, but a display of the entire world's appeasement <laughs> that was happening yeah. concurrently. Um, I mean, the and, you know, my grandmother would have won if she had competed. So it was like they were also putting the national identity over their actual desire to win, you know, because they were too, they were so concerned with the optics of the event. And one of the reasons they wanted to do it was because it was going to be the first televised Olympics, you know, they thought, oh, the whole world will see Germany's dominance. Um, now, now, before real quick, we get into uh, what this looks like, because I do want to talk more in depth about the traditions that came out of this. What was the rest of the world's response? Was it just the, the German Republic going around saying, no, you can't boycott us? Or was there actual international pressure to stop countries from boycotting? I mean, within America, specifically, just entirely, there was a lot of uh, contention around participating in the Olympics, but the president of the um, you know American Olympic Committee was super in favor of staying on and would say things like the Olympic Games belong to the athletes, not to the politicians. You know, uh, the American athletes should not become involved in the present Jew Nazi altercation. It's just like a lot of really gross shit. He thought that there was a Jewish communist conspiracy to leave the U.S. out of the games. Yeah, a lot of people. I think. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of uh, rich, powerful people at that time obviously had a vested interest in the games happening because they don't actually care what happens to people mm-hmm. in yeah. and around the games. They just want to make money. And, you know, when the 1932 Olympics were held in Los Angeles, it was the Depression. And so they were holding this big, fancy spectacle where they built all this stuff, you know, while there were like Hoovervilles in the street right outside. And so that obviously is a thing we think about a lot in terms of the 2028 Los Angeles Olympics, um, that putting on this big expensive spectacle when there are obviously other things right next door that you can spend money on that would make more sense is not an accident. And and we still see a lot of the not really traditions, but sort of innovations that Nazi Germany brought to the Olympic Games uh, still around today. Can you tell me a bit about that, Stephen? Sure. So, um, 
Yeah, so building off of the 1934 World Cup in Italy, um, uh, Joseph, uh, his you know administrative propaganda saw this as an opportunity to um, create this giant spectacle that the whole world is going to be looking at. That they can obviously show off how great you know Germany and the Third Reich is. Uh, but there were some things that they didn't do in the Olympics in prior games, and that was one of the the idea of this opening ceremony of the different nations marching in, very uh, similar to like you know Romans uh, and saluting uh, uh, you know the chancellor um, as he was watching these different nat- nations uh, march by, and it's really interesting how. Um, you know, the next Olympics were canceled because of World War II, and the following Olympics were also canceled because of World War II. And they, when they started up again, um, that was one of, you know, the Nazis were defeated, and fascism supposedly in Europe had been defeated or relinquished at the time. And uh, yeah, the IOC thought, you know, that um, big opening ceremony that the Nazis did, that was kind of cool. We should keep doing that. And um, yeah, and we still do it. Yeah, the Nazis invented the torch relay. Uh, which I think a lot of people don't know. The original, the idea of lighting a torch was apocryphally came from ancient Greece, that there was like, you lit a big flame at the, to celebrate the games. But the idea of it pass the torch passing from country to country. And during the 36 Olympics, it was specifically all countries that from ancient Greece to Germany, that the Germans were trying to draw parallels of like, you know, the greatness of Western society yeah, starting in ancient Greece. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and all that stuff, that sort of domination and imperialism is all very much what the Olympics is about. Well, it seems like a lot of the modern Olympic traditions are very uh, Eurocentric, to use that phrase, and very built on that kind of like European nationalism that began to emerge after World War One and sort of got, you know, through the crucible into World War Two. Right. Can you talk a little bit how the how those threads have played out since then as we go through kind of moving through different iterations of the game in different countries and sort of seeing different sort of fascist rulers get their hand at this? Well, they're marketed to people who are told that, like, they need to be restored to past glory and that this is something that will help restore the nation. And they're promised jobs and infrastructure and all these great things that will come out of the Olympics that the point is that those things should be put in place anyway without the Olympics. And then obviously the Olympics never actually bring them. Uh, The Olympics always bring destruction and displacement and policing, military policing. So there's a very close connection between the sort of like military display that the games represent and the military, the, the invitation to the military to take over a town that's hosting the Olympics. I mean, sports are already like the opiate of the masses, but when you add like promises of great infrastructure that will help everyone it's a surefire way of quelling dissent in a country that is like bubbling at the seams with it one of the things that uh the ioc uh you know considers when they're you know choosing a city is how authoritarian the government is because it's a lot easier to put games on in a more authoritarian government you know Mm -hmm. if you need a stadium built or whatever or people moved the more authoritarian the government is, the easier it is to just move those people and build that stadium. I mean, I think it's pretty obvious in the lack of democracy in the actual process by which a country gets the Olympics that it is f- more favorable to countries that uh, aren't democratic. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, we talked a little bit about how fascism is a response to embarrassment, uh, historical or perceived embarrassment. Uh, what about you know, on the ground sports stuff. Did we see like the Germans have any embarrassing moments that might have helped explain their desire to like be seen as competing on the national stage or the international stage? Well, the interesting thing about the the German team 
during uh, Nazi occupation or during Nazi Germany, I mean, uh, was that they weren't actually that great. Um, They're kind of a mediocre team that would lose a lot. Um, but they would still kind of use that to their advantage as because this is before they had actually shown any real aggression um, or at least trying to tone down their aggression uh, in the eyes of the world. And they would lose to Britain, which, which was like a better team. Um, and they, But they would lose graciously in a way that would kind of make some people that were maybe on the fence or sympathetic to fascism uh, in Germany and other places. Um, there's a moment where uh, Britain played... Uh, the uh, the German football team in Berlin and lost, but the Britain team actually did the Nazi salute um, during uh, during their anthem as a show of uh, good sportsmanship. I guess interesting. Yeah, sports is very not political in that in that respect. Right, and the idea that you shouldn't talk about these things or that it's impolite to bring up questions of of the racism and fascism of the games because you're just ruining the fun for everybody. When, you know, none of us are against sports or against athletics as an idea, but it's very manipulative to use sports as a tool to recruit people into essentially authoritarianism. Uh, a, a couple of other, you know, kind of notable fascist regimes that were running in Europe at the time were, uh, you know, obviously Franco's regime in Spain, Mussolini's regime in Italy. Did they have the same parallels as Nazi Germany? They obviously didn't have as big a, you know, draw or spectacle. I like going how on. you describe them as like just a few fascist startups at yeah. the same yeah. time. <laughs> well, Franco, uh, uh, you know, Hitler didn't really care for Franco, and they kind of uh, they got to sit out World War II because. Franco had just taken over Catalonia and the capital of Barcelona, and the country was his. And um, Madrid started, had a football team, and Franco decided to make that his team that represented his fascist regime. And as kind of a, a um, you know, show of defiance, the Barcelona team, which was the last holdout of the, the Spanish Civil War, they, that was their team. Um, and they, the, the rivalry to this day, even. This um, is why Barca is the best team in the world. <laughs> <laughs> More than a team. <laughs> yeah, uh, Ariel is our resident actual soccer fan. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so she's here to both defend soccer and uh, lambast people who I use it for evil. every World Cup game, even though, obviously, I am uh, sitting here talking about how horrible FIFA and uh, IOC is. Well, I think that's what we're talking about, is that people who want to consume these things without thinking about the politics of it, it's like, no, you can still consume it, but you have to think about it. Mm-hmm. Once you learn about what the Olympics does to a place, you can never just sort of enjoy it as, like, this fun carnival that turns out destroys other cities. Uh, and so the fact that it's coming to Los Angeles supposedly in 2028 um, and that that would place the entire city basically under Department of Homeland Security's power and allow ICE and DHS to do whatever they want. You know, this is sort of what we talk about. It's like some of the people in our city are basically being anti-interventionist about ICE. Like it's like something they're not, you know, it's not their problem. They didn't make it happen. So they're, they're not allowed to have feelings about it. But then, you know, in these ways, they're actively helping ICE to do more damage to our city and to displace people. Uh, And so I think when people talk about like, you know, what about the good Germans who like did nothing? It's like, well, if you do nothing, you're not a good German anymore. If you just sort of accept it because it doesn't affect you, you know, you go along with the the fascism because you're not going to get, you're not in danger 
uh, you're you're just as bad. And I think it shows just kind of how deep some of these historical wounds go that like that sort of political schism almost a century ago still plays itself out in a very like lively rivalry. Um, what about uh, Mussolini in Italy? I, I'm, I'm not very familiar with too much of his his sporting. I don't, you know, think I don't connect him in the same way as I do to Hitler to the sort of international games. Well, he was notorious. wasn't a big fan of sports, I believe. He yeah, but he just uh, knew how useful they could be, like all, all of these leaders did. I don't think any of them were. Fond I was gonna of say sport. I don't think any. It's because they were probably all unathletic. Yeah, Hitler was very not interested in the games until he was convinced by yeah, Goebbels. Goebbels and some other people who said this is a great tool for fascism, and he said that the Olympics were for Jews and Freemasons. Was his original. <laughs> somebody had to ch- and somebody Such had to pull him aside. Uh, yeah, somebody had to pull him aside. He's like, no, regular people like sports a lot. <laughs> <laughs> like, let me. Te- we have to teach you about what normal people like. <laughs> yeah, and he was excited by the idea that they would be on television and that the whole world would see, you know, what Germany had become. And that's why they're the most expensive Olympics up to that point. Are really like the first of the modern Olympics in that sense. Yeah, and sponsored by Coca Cola. Yeah. Uh, and so after, uh, once we move through the Olympics uh, and we move on to the actual war in Europe starting, how did things change for people that were playing sports in Europe then? Because we know that, like, that life didn't completely stop. You know, we have that, that Tom Hanks movie about baseball here. Uh, I assume, you know, sports life didn't completely come to a halt in Europe. Um, a League of Their Own. Put, oh, yeah. put some respect on A League of Their Own. No, that I should call, I should that call Tom out, Hanks movie. Yeah, yeah, I should call out Penny Marshall. Uh, yeah. it, it, it is much better Penny than just Tom, Mar- Tom Hanks. Um, but yeah, so what was life like for European footballers at this time as the war raged on? Um, well, I mean, at the time, the best team was the Austrian team, basically, and, and Italy, mostly because Mussolini pulled a lot of strings. Um, they were like a talented team, but when they hosted the World Cup, um, you know, as we said earlier, they just like rigged the whole entire thing. Um, but the, you know, other best team was Austria and their star player, um, uh, Matthias Sindelar was like the David Beckham of his age. Um, and... They, uh, when when Nazi Germany uh, invaded Austria, they forced a lot of the Austrian team to play on the German team to just make make them look better, um, which didn't really work because they mostly played against each other on the same team. And so for uh, Matthias Sindelar, uh, he went on to lead a happy, robust life after his time with the German team. Well, he refu- he was an uh, an anti-fascist actually, and um, and was. Um, very adamant about that to the point that he refused to play for the German team. And, um, you know, there's kind of some, a little bit of uh, ambiguousness about his, um, his death, but he was actually found dead um, with his uh, partner at the time and uh, through uh, carbon monoxide poisoning. Um, and, uh, you know, you know the Nazi uh, Nazi secret police were obviously v- notorious for making people disappear. Um, you, you know, prior to World War II actually breaking out, and um, and a lot of people at the time that have been interviewed around that area, they think that they, it was you know that police report was uh, forged and he was actually murdered. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a question of like, was it an accident because of like the fireplace or whatever in his apartment or suicide or murder but in any case it's all very suspicious and there was a Gestapo file on him like seems pretty clear. He was a, well I mean he was a very famous sports star and he was very much openly against the regime to the point where he boycotted playing 
Um, so you can see, you know, some parallels with um, sports today, with uh, people standing up to certain regimes um, and, you know, very publicly and making signs of defiance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's hard to make, you know, being someone who obeys the rules all the time cool because it's not super cool. Um, but you can see how kind of neo-fascists are always trying to reframe fascism as like it's cool and like individualistic. Yeah. But you see that they get very angry when people like Colin Kaepernick protest. And I, I want to ask, what's the legacy of this as we're moving into the modern games? Because after World War II, we all know fascism was defeated once and for all and we never have to deal with it ever again, right? Yeah, it stopped trending through Europe. Um, well, now we just, it's now a big display for uh, not only authoritarian countries throughout the world, but neoliberal ones like ours. I, the 1984 Olympics were a spectacle as big as the 36 ones. Yeah, the, f the famous LA Games. I do think like this, the sweeps of the unhoused folks that happened um, during the 84 Olympics, you know, you can draw a pretty close parallel to when Nazi Germany swept uh, all of the gypsies out of Berlin at the time. So it's like that's there's this repeated trend yeah, of the, undesirables. The being London Games out. displaced all of the the homeless people in that in the un areas where the games were happening there. The 2012 games. Yeah, and I think what is really insidious about the way the 2028 games are being presented is this sort of exceptionalism on top of exceptionalism, the idea that LA won't have the same problems that literally every place that's ever hosted the Olympics has because we're somehow better or more well-trained for it, which, you know, if you see how we react to any sort of minor civic emergency, you can tell we are not actually prepared at all for anything that could happen from the Olympics. And what is the what are these trends or what does this exercise of state kind of corporate power look like in various cities that have hosted the games? Well, they build they build buildings sometimes and you know they claim that these buildings are going to be great buildings that will seamlessly blend into the landscape and then they all become abandoned sort of off-sites. Um, I don't know how many you guys have been to, but... Oh, yeah, I love looking at pictures of the empty stadiums. It's like empty stadium porn. Yeah. Uh, it's like, oh, look, at this is like a sign of the, you know... They're the sort of amazingly of bad at it because you're like, you really... You don't have to build a building that just nobody can ever use for anything again, but they always do. Mm-hmm. I mean, a good modern example is like the Sochi Olympics. Uh, Putin like bragged about it being the largest construction site like in the world at the time. And uh, it was meant to just revitalize areas of Russia. And it never really does that because all of those, you know, construction sites are utterly useless in the end. By the time they get all, you know, dilapidated and overgrown, the, the group of people that actually made money from it, you know, they're long gone. Yeah. Yeah, because they're like Potemkin villages. They're like putting a bunch of sort of fake infrastructure up but it's meant to be temporary and then when the circus leaves town the infrastructure is still there but it's not really built around what people actually need in those places the classic yeah. monorail story yeah well i remember hearing out of sochi there's a, a mountain village that's basically completely cut off from its access to any sort of urban center because it was just more convenient to not let them have a road so they could build a ski run or something uh south korea they cut down an old growth trees uh but there's also really invasive technology and we're dealing with this here in la like uh stop lapd spying and uh countering violent extremism measures that we're kind of like fighting against uh, uh, for police surveillance and surveillance of the population, these seem like they would be really popular with the folks who are trying to throw the Olympics. 
And yeah, and not just in fascist governments. In the London 2012 Olympics, that um, they brought in so much technology, it made London the most surveilled city in the world, and it still is. Um, at the SLC, uh, sorry, the Salt Lake City Olympics, I should say, um, they uh, did so much surveillance of people um, in the like nearby areas, even well after the Olympics were out of town. And that was technology in the mid-aughts. Yeah. Think about what the technology is going to be in 2028. You know, there's going to be... It's going to be a drone in everyone's bedroom. Yeah, drone, dr- <laughs> drones the size of June bugs flying around, you know. I, but does this technology go away? Like, once the games are over, it, do, you know, you said the, the circus leaves town. I assume they take all of their militarized police and surveillance state equipment with them. No. Yeah, I don't think they're going <laughs> to throw those drones in the trash. That they leave. <laughs> that, so there's, like, all the cities have a legacy sort of in them that... Uh, pointing to the Olympic hosting that they did. There's some, like, sort of wounds there upon their civic society. Yeah, I mean, you know, um, this was mentioned in an earlier, uh, you know, show, but, you know, it's probably a direct link for the 1984 LA um, Olympics with the uh, 1992 LA uprising. Um, it was, uh, you know, basically the broken windows policy. Um, all of that, all of that technology, all of that, those tactics, which um, came from the Israeli uh, military, um, that, that was used in preparation for Olympics, and they stayed all throughout the 80s and into the 90s until the point where the city uh, erupted in violence. Mm-hmm. And what do you think this looks like for Los Angeles heading into our potential 2028 bid, especially with like our new police chief, who's a big fan of data driven policing? What sort of trends are you worried about? I mean, I think you just kind of said it in the question. (laughs) All of the above. But more like how, yeah, like how, like how would that, how would that change like my daily life going around L.A.? Um, You'll probably feel more like you're living in an open air prison. Um, you know, maybe you won't see big giant fences or barbed wire, but it's, you know, it's kind of virtual, you know, or with, with the software and everything, like, uh, like Johnny mentioned with the facial recognition, it's already happening in Tokyo. Um, and we see how fast technology develops, you know, it's kind of exponential. So. And companies let people access that information. They let, you know, cops have access to, or people have access to data tracking kind of stuff. Yeah, how many, you know, tech startups are going to have, like, private contracts with the, you know, Olympic Committee to right. do this stuff? You can see now with tech sort of navigating, the, you know, taking money from the military, that it's just something they will do. Uh, you know, people are not interested in sort of the morality of whether or not you should do some of these things. They're just only interested in whether it's profitable for somebody. Mm-hmm. And do you think there's, like, effective points of resistance for individuals against companies like Palantir and those that we know are going to be making a lot of money off of the the deployment of this technology? Like, what are ways for me as somebody on the ground here in L.A. to fight against this kind of, like, fascism moving into my city? I think information. I think spreading information about this is the most effective way to get people to understand what's bad about it. It's sort of the information really speaks for itself when you look at it. Just spread the no Olympics gospel. I mean, we just try to talk to everyone and every, everywhere about this because the more people know, the more they are against it and want to speak up about it. Um, and um, yeah, and usually when, when you, exp- usually a quick thing that gets people to really think about is the idea of handing over the city to uh, the federal government, uh, you know, with, you know, uh, uh, DHS and ICE and um, yeah. 
Yeah, and the fact that, you know, if prices go up in L.A. anymore, nobody wants that, uh, no matter what kind of position they're in financially. It's like the city's already very unaffordable, so the idea that it's going to make it even more unaffordable isn't really appealing to anybody. Mm -hmm. Uh, So to throw on our our theory mortarboards real quick, what do you think it says about the friendly relationship for somebody who's ostensibly, you know, center left like Garcetti to be so enamored with bringing the Olympics to his city? Um, And what do you think that says about sort of our current politics here? I think it says he's complicit in fascism. Absolutely. Yeah. um, Even liberals aren't immune to the allure of fascism. I mean, it can be very uh, enticing to some people. I mean, just like, you know, why they were so attracted to having the, um, the opening ceremonies. I mean, I'll, I'll admit they are impressive to look at, um, especially some of the modern ones. Um, and yeah, even liberal, egalitarian uh, countries will do it, and including our mayor. And it shows how hypocritical he really is every time he talks about um, resisting Trump, because as you know, these horrible things are happening at our border that Garcetti himself decries very hypocritically, I will say. Um, it kind of, it reminds me of what that um, American Olympic Committee president said back when they were talking about boycotting the Berlin Olympics was just like, let's not bring politics into it. It's about the athletes. It's about people coming together. And that's exactly what Garcetti always says about this. He's like, I can work with Donald Trump on the Olympics because it isn't about politics. This is just about doing something great for our country and for our we're city. all a bunch of rich kids. But, he, rich but that dads. just reinforces what Trump is doing it, like, as a distraction. And it could very well have the same consequences that you know the Berlin Olympics had where people left it being like, oh, Germany seems more human now. Like That was a reaction people did have. Do you think there's any hope to extricating sort of this uh, fascism from the Olympics or or are these things inextricably linked? We have a video coming out with an Olympics called Swolshalism. 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 Like socialism, but getting swole. Yeah, exactly. You got it. Because there is a history of sports and like workers sports movements. Um, There was a workers Olympiad um, around the same time as the Nazi Olympics. So um, it's a celebration of that and how we can think about um, sports being for the people. Yeah. As socialists, we're pro-people working together on a, on a task, which is like what sports should be about, you know, is a team coming together with different skills to help achieve a goal. Uh, and that goal isn't to make a ton of money for Coca-Cola. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. always everyone's goal, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> But yeah, that's the point is that I think uh, there are certain times when morals, you know, um, caring more about the morality of an event like this and what it represents should come first uh, versus its profitability. And in the 30s, that is, you know, people put profit over politics and kind of went along with it. And when we talk about America entering World War II, there was obviously a lot of time before that they could have entered it that they chose not to because people were very, a lot of people didn't want to get involved. Uh, And so I think people's fear of having like a a feeling about it, having a stance on it. But people also just want to watch like Bruno Mars on a hoverboard go across the Coliseum or whatever (laughs) that's going to happen in the opening ceremony. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's fine to be distracted, but not at the expense of things that are actually important. You know, if if the Olympics could exist in a vacuum, the way that they describe them as like, you know, they cost, they don't cost anybody anything. Nobody gets displaced. Uh, 
you know, wake me up when that happens. Be inter- be entertained without, you know, sacrificing your humanity. <laughs> yeah, but we think there are ways to be entertained without sacrificing your humanity and that there are ways to have sports without fascism, but the Olympics are not it. Mm-hmm. At least yeah. not, not in their current form. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you very, very much for joining me. I think this has been a really fascinating uh, sort of historical look at the way that our historical signifiers change that we kind of kind of pick things up culturally that we don't really understand and they get buried and monetized. Uh, so any last thoughts before you all leave on this episode? Yeah, I mean, it's also I think looking at history for stuff like this is really the most useful thing you can do because you do see that these things happen over and over again and that nothing we're experiencing is exactly new. Just the way that it happens is different. But, you know, there are ways to overthrow fascism and not to just complacently accept that it's going to come to your town and take over. To learn more and get involved, please visit nolympicsla.com and knock.la. For the soup.